Welcome to another episode of the Deborah Health Report, where we dive into current health and medical topics to keep the Delaware Valley informed and updated. The conversation continues with cardiologist Dr. Renee Bullock-Palmer as we focus on the heart and discuss hands-on CPR, automated external defibrillators, and ways to protect our hearts. Here's Rasa Kay. Hi, I'm Rasa Kay, and I'm talking with cardiologist Dr. Renee Bullock-Palmer. If you've identified a change in how you're feeling that isn't improving or is clearly getting worse, even if you feel like you can maintain your daily routine in spite of it, you need to see your doctor and get to the bottom of it. It might be heart disease. There are many non-invasive ways to pinpoint exactly what kind, through imaging, calcium, scoring, monitors, among others. And if your ticker is showing signs of trouble, there are lots of ways you can help it. Ways that can help prevent heart disease in the first place. So lend an ear as we continue our discussion of a heart-healthy lifestyle, starting with heart-healthy eating. Right, so that's a key factor, major impact on our overall cardiovascular health. You are what you eat, and that's a fact, and that actually starts from when we're younger, when we're in your childhood, trying to have a balanced diet where you're having a lot of fruits, vegetables, healthy, lean pieces of uh, poultry, fish, um, trying to avoid animal fats um, that's typically found in red meat and trying to minimize that. Whole grains are also healthy because that helps us to manage our glucose levels and our cholesterol levels as well. And keeping yourself hydrated, all of those factors have very important impact on your overall health. Let's talk about hydration. It's like, that's it. Dr. Palmer says, I need to be hydrated. I need another beer. So let's talk about hydration and how that affects the heart. Right. So definitely um, dehydration can impact the overall heart, overall health um, because that can affect your kidneys. Feeling dehydrated can sometimes trigger palpitations and that have even been shown to you know, increase in some cases risk factors for high blood pressure, especially if you're um, not drinking enough water, you're having a very high sodium diet that can also trigger changes in the hormones at the kidney level that can impact your blood pressure. So it's very important to keep well hydrated, at least six to eight glasses of water daily. And having fruits throughout the day can sometimes help with that as well, instead of having processed sweetened um, drinks. What about alcohol? How about the hooch? Right. So, of course, um, alcohol, overuse of alcohol is something that we try to prevent and avoid. So for women, no more than um, one four-ounce glass of alcohol per day. For men, no more than two. Ideally, if you can limit it to less, less than two or three a week would be ideal. During the COVID-19 pandemic, unfortunately, Many of us relied on alcohol to take the edge off, and they've actually seen an increase in liver disease amongst uh, young people because of even drinking a glass of wine with dinner every night can, can add. So although the heart may not necessarily be affected, the liver is not happy. And overall, that may impact the heart you know, in, in years to come. So I think trying to limit your alcohol, ideally, if you can avoid it, that's great. If you have to have it, I would say personally, I try not to have more than two drinks a week. The foods that help lower cholesterol and blood pressure. I mean, you talked about fruits and vegetables for hydration and all of that, but your top three to avoid, top three to get more of. Right. So the top three to avoid, I would say red meat, that includes beef and pork. Try to minimize your eggs. The yolk of the egg has the highest cholesterol content. If you can avoid it, 
great. If you really have to have your egg, then take the yolk out of the egg and just have the egg whites. And then things like cheese, you know, butter, try to minimize those. So those are my top three in terms of avoiding. In terms of getting more of, then you want to have seafood like salmon, tuna, that can be very healthy, lean pieces of poultry, whole grains, things such as brown rice instead of white rice, and whole grain bread instead of white bread, and trying to have at least five to six servings or more of fruits and vegetables daily. And I think if you try to think of your plate when you're eating, trying to have at least a third, or if not more, of that plate being some form of a vegetable, having a fruit, you know, instead of having a drink when you're having a meal. And if you do that for your three meals throughout the day, it's been very easy to try to get to that, getting enough fruits and vegetables in your diet. Any supplements that can help your heart? So I tend to tell my patients that, you know, if you're eating an overall balanced diet, if you want to have a multivitamin tablet, that's fine. But I really think that it really has not been shown to really impact overall cardiovascular health. There have been a multiple multitude of studies that have shown that. So for somebody who is heavier, of course, you'd want them to lose the weight and eat healthy. But is there a body shape in terms of how you carry the excess weight that is indicative of the impact on the heart? The BMI, body mass index, is important. Your weight for your height, right? So that's something everyone can Google and find out how to calculate. So making sure that you're in the ideal BMI is very important. The next thing you want to try to avoid is central adiposity, where you're having a lot of fat within the, the stomach because that's where a lot of the organs are, like the liver, the pancreas, and that increased girth in the um, waistline have actually been linked to insulin resistance, which then causes diabetes, heart disease. So that apple-shaped <laughs> body. Okay. Sleep. How does sleep help your heart? Right. So sleep or, you know, lack of sleep, I should say, has been shown to be linked to heart disease because that actually increases your risk for things such as high blood pressure can also even lack of um, you know, sleep deprivation, significant fatigue can even, you know, trigger things like even a heart attack if you have an underlying condition like a blockage. So the HA has actually advised Life Essential 8, which I had mentioned earlier, with getting at least six to eight hours of sleep, right? And that's uninterrupted sleep. That's very important. Certainly, if you're having issues where you're getting up multiple times throughout the night, if you have excessive snoring, not being able to stay asleep, then you may want to get checked at a sleep center to check for sleep apnea, because if that goes untreated, that can definitely cause more issues. Active lifestyle. How much exercise are we urged to have? So usually the HA recommends at least 150 minutes of moderate activity throughout the week, three hours on average throughout the week. And that's just, that's the bare minimum, I would say. If you can get to five hours throughout the week would be ideal. So what you want to think of, of doing is like doing 30 to 45 minutes of moderate activity each day. And that might be something as simple as walking, you know, walking for half an hour to 45 minutes at a brisk pace, not just a stroll. For some people, that's not their thing. They may prefer to cycle or doing some, you know, aerobic activity. One of the silver linings of the COVID pandemic is that there have been a lot of gyms and even exercise routines that have moved online. So even if you cannot make it to the gym, then you can actually do things online and, and just keeping it simple. I, I've told my patients all you need to have is a pair of sneakers, comfortable clothes, and you can go for a walk. It's really as simple as that. So you really want to work up a 
bit of a sweat? You want to be breathing a little harder? Right. Is it better to to be jogging and to really be pounding the pavement and, and breathing hard? Or, I mean, is there more benefit to, to working out harder? So, you know, there have been studies that have looked at high intensity exercises. And one of the main things that you have to be considerate of, especially as we get older, is causing injury, right? So, you might be doing a high intensity exercise and that's great, but one you have to ask yourself, is it something that you can maintain throughout the week or you're gonna do a you know, high intensity probably one day and then the rest of the month you're not doing much, right? So you wanna have something that's sustainable. With high intensity exercises, you wanna make sure you're not causing injury, you know, back injury, your knees, especially if you're not running in, in proper shoes for running, you can end up having issues with your knees over time. So those are some of the things you know, I've told my patients, slow and steady first, and then if you develop the stamina and you want to, you know, do some high intensity, then try to mix it up throughout the week so you could alternate doing high intensity one day, the other day do something more moderate intensity, and then so on. Brushing your teeth, flossing, all of that. How is your jawbone connected to your heart muscle? So definitely dental decay. Poor dentition has have been linked to heart disease, actually. One of the important things that you know, we've always told our patients is that trying to make sure that you see your dentist. Definitely if you have heart disease and will be going for heart surgery or surgeons will demand a complete dental evaluation because you would not want to implant a heart valve and then have bacteria see that valve. But the overall dentition is important because that has been linked to heart disease. That's interesting that if your pre-op regimen is going to mean a recent trip to the dentist to get checked out. Yeah, in fact, if you have like dental caries and before getting that valve placed, we have to have those removed because you then end up seeding that valve and coming back with an infected valve. So So if you've got a cavity, it's like you cannot put that off until after you deal with the heart thing. Wow. Okay. If you have chest pain, should you pop an aspirin? And what kind of aspirin? A chewable aspirin? One of the little ones? I mean, that that whole, the, the aspirin regimen has become semi-controversial right. recently. So what's what's our thinking on aspirin these days? Right. So if you're ch- taking um, aspirin for an acute emergency with chest pain, you should be taking the chewable aspirin, not the coated aspirin, because you want to have that immediate effect from the medication, right? And, and so. what strength aspirin? At that point, usually, you know, sometimes we have to give like, you know, 325 at that point. Again, that's triple aspirin. If it's a less of an acute situation and you just want to, you know, keep yourself healthy, for the recommendation for aspirin is that if you do have established heart disease or if you have established what we call peripheral vascular disease where you may have had a carotid stent on the side of the neck or of the legs poor circulation, in those situations then an aspirin is recommended. If you do not have any of those, you know, no heart disease, no peripheral vascular disease, no medical reason to take it, then the recommendation is that you do not take the aspirin because I think there have been studies that have shown that it may increase the risk of having bleed in the brain. So generally speaking for my patients, if there's no reason for them to take it medically, I do not have them on it. Now, having said that, um, you know, with the use of cardiac CT, we've been diagnosing a lot of patients subclinically for heart disease, and we look at what we call a calcium score. So if that calcium score is above 100, and to give you an idea, calcium scores can go as high as 3,000. Right? If, if you have a calcium score of over 100, then the recommendation is that you should be on aspirin. Um, if you have no calcium or calcium score less than 100 and no medical reasons, then you should not be on an aspirin. That simple little preventative now, we have to worry about calcium scores. and all. Well, it's complicated, but it's also much more precision medicine. Right. 
Stress, stress. We stress about the details. Stress and the heart. There's good stress. Planning a wedding. It's happy, but it's stressful. And then, of course, you know, planning a funeral, an entirely different kind of stress. So how, how do you balance stress and heart health? You know, as I've told my patients, you cannot avoid stress, right? We all have stress in our lives. But what you can manage is how you react to the stress, right? So what could that be? That We had mentioned drinking during the COVID pandemic. Some people rely on drinking. I've had people who have stopped smoking for years. The pandemic happened. They've tipped back into smoking. So the, the stress itself can, can trigger bad habits, right? Lack of sleep, poor eating habits, drinking, smoking. That being said, though, as well, in addition to that, if you do not know or you can't handle the stress effectively, for some people, that can trigger a panic attack. For some people, if you have an underlying condition like a blockage, that can trigger a heart attack. You know, when we have lost a lot of souls during the pandemic, some people actually have what we call a broken heart syndrome, especially for women. And I've had patients that, you know, they go through that extended grieving period and they manifest with heart disease. And there's actually a condition called Takotsubo's where um, that extreme stress, that extreme grief actually causes a heart to get weak. These people will present like a heart attack and we rush them to the cath lab, look at the vessels, there are no blockages. And then over a number of months, that heart recovers. And that, that is thought to be due to the extreme catecholamines, that extreme stress that happens with the heart. It's like a sudden bolt that causes the heart to do that. So the heart is a remarkable organ that can respond, that can respond to varying areas, you know, issues with stress. What is our understanding now of COVID's effect on the heart? And, and I guess this whole long COVID reality, really, there's been some very interesting new research confirming a link between COVID and a debilitating heart condition called POTS. Can you explain POTS and what that is and whatever we know about about COVID's effect on it, link to it, and basically what what it is, because certainly it's been around before COVID. Right, so basically it's called, the medical term is posterior orthostatic tachycardic syndrome. What that really means is that for, you know, for patients, their, their blood pressure, their heart rate is very sensitive to their posture, right? So you'll have these, for besides COVID, I'd have, before COVID, I'd have these patients coming in very young women, and you know, they're just, you know, their heart is just racing, unnecessarily sitting here speaking to you, their heart is going at 100 beats per minute. They get up, they go for a run, they can't do it because they just feel this overwhelming dizziness, fatigue. The blood pressure essentially tanks, very low blood pressure. So what what the, the condition is really due to is just, um, you know, for our heart, we do have nerve, nerve endings and the nervous system that helps to tell our body and the heart when to increase the blood pressure, when to lower the heart rate, and during that, um, that disease, that goes out of sync, right? So these patients tend to have low blood pressure readings, very sensitive to their, their body position. So sitting, like laying down, they're feeling fine, but the minute they stand up, they're like, oh, feeling dizzy. So getting back to COVID, so those patients with long COVID will present with symptoms like POTS, the heart racing, the dizziness, sometimes the fatigue. How we manage this is really symptomatic. And um, we try to make sure that they're kept well hydrated, we may have to start them on certain medications. If we do find an underlying issue, like an arrhythmic issue, we may have to get that treated. Again, it's a very difficult area to treat, and it's one that we're constantly learning. 
And this is one that seems to be, and, and you talked about young people, so yes. this can show up, and it tends to hang on for a while. I mean, it once you have it, do you, do you, I mean, this is your thing now, and you need to be careful, you know, not stand up too fast, or right. what? So for, for, for long COVID, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a long period of time that they have had these symptoms, and there have been cases where, as time goes by, months, sometimes a year, sometimes two years, eventually the symptoms, you know, um, defervesce and they feel, you know, better. Um, for some people, it just never goes away, and you just have to try to manage it with medications, with lifestyle changes. Um, sometimes even support stockings can help because it sort of squeezes the blood back to the heart. Besides COVID, for the young patients that I've taken care of with POTS, um, as they get older, some of these patients may have less symptoms as they get older. And um, and they, many just learn to manage their symptoms with medications, and, and um, even exercise is also very helpful for these patients as well. All right, the other thing we keep hearing about COVID, post-COVID, is this whole microclotting abnormality. What's the state of that? Right, so during the throes of COVID when we were in the midst of the pandemic, that's something that we had tended to see with these patients where the blood ends up being very sticky, right? And that in and of itself can manifest even with a heart attack because then if there's sluggish flow in the vessels of the heart, you know, these people will manifest with a heart attack. Sometimes that may manifest with a PE, a clot in the lungs. So the overwhelming sepsis can sometimes cause that to happen where the blood gets very sticky. And oftentimes, you know, they have to be treated for these conditions that may... When you say sepsis, like a... a, a infection, overwhelming infection. Throughout the body, systemic. Right, secondary to the COVID, right. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a disease that we're still... I mean, there have been so many things that we have learned and are continuing to learn. But that's something that we did see during, especially in the acute phase of the pandemic. Now, the cases we're seeing with COVID, most of these cases are incidental. They're coming in for a test. You do a COVID test, it's positive. Fortunately, you know, if you're vaccinated, most times the symptoms are not as, as dire as, as the unvaccinated. Bottom line, when should you see a doctor if you're worried about your heart? Right. So there's something called the well woman's visit, which is something I have um, highly encouraged my patients and just in general public. You know, if you're above the age of 40, you should at least have a well woman's visit. I would say at least once, if not every other year, where you're having your blood pressure checked, your cholesterol checked, your glucose checked. Um, keeping your weight in check as well is very important. So having at least that visit, that's assuming you do not have any medical problems, you're not having any symptoms. That being said, if you're having symptoms, um, as I had, we had mentioned earlier, fatigue, shortness of breath, chest pain, you should definitely see the physician. At the Bore Heart Lung, we do take self-referrals. So if you need to see a cardiologist, all you have to do is pick up the phone, call and make an appointment. For some patients, they may present to, prefer to present to their primary care doctor first because they have had that established relationship, speaking to the primary, and if, you know, if needed, going for further testing. Now you talk about the well woman visit, what about a well man visit? At what Absolutely. point should a man get his ticker checked? Right, I think um, assuming that there are no medical problems, I would also advocate for 40. That's just my personal opinion, um, you know, on that, I'd say 40 years of age, yeah. And know your numbers, getting that blood work and knowing what's your cholesterol and triglycerides and all of that stuff. Right. That's cardiologist Dr. Renee Bullock-Palmer. I'll be back with a new medical report with news you can definitely use to feel better and live better. Our next podcast drops the first Wednesday of the month. I'm Rasa Kay. You can always listen to all of the informative Deborah Doctor interviews at DeborahHealthReport.com. Schedule an appointment at demanddeborah.org.